From the stables in Milton Keynes, home to world-class music, entertainment, is Milton Keynes International Festival, and a whole lot more besides. This is Turn Up The Volume, with your host, Nick Coffer. Welcome to the December edition of Turn Up The Volume from the stables in Milton Keynes. I can't offer you mince pies or mulled wine or bright jumpers, but I can offer you some brilliant artists taking the time to chat to us ahead of their upcoming appearances at the stables. We're heading back to the 80s today. The wonderfully warm and cheeky and chatty Mary Wilson. She'll be looking back on Pop's best-known beehive and forward to her very Merry Christmas party coming to the stables on December the 16th. Peter Cox chats to us about Go West's upcoming show and the solo date that he's bringing to the stables in 2024. And from the 80s to the 18s, well, the 1800s to be precise, as we look ahead to the stables' enchanting Christmas treat Hansel and Gretel, Brought to you by multi-award winning Boxtail Soup. Let's start with Go West and Peter Cox. 38 years after they took the 80s pop world by storm with We Close Our Eyes, Brit Awards followed an album sold in their millions. And in the years since, they've never stopped playing live and creating new music. Some of which you'll hear when Peter returns to the stables for a solo gig on the back of his new album, Sea Glass. That'll be in 2024. For now, he's at home surrounded by moving boxes and he somehow found the time to speak to us, having literally just moved into his new house peter is it chaos it's yeah controlled chaos i would say but yes it's pretty chaotic um all my workroom my so-called studio is behind me in boxes here although it doesn't seem to have dampened the echo in the room apparently (laughs) listen you're here with two hats on the 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 go west hat and and the solo hat and we'll talk about the solo stuff a bit later on as well but let's go back to to where it all started A, a couple of lads who'd never actually played live trying to get a record deal yes we were fans of uh, a band called the quick uh colin Campsey and george mcfarland who was signed to epic at the time and we had seen them uh performing and promoting their own material colin was the singer and george had a for want of a better description a howard jones kind of multi-keyboard setup so on one level even though we were quite a different sounding uh outfit we thought, well, if they can do it as a duo, then so can we. Um, but of course, we came quickly came up against an obstacle when we were approaching labels. If we got as far as an, an actual face-to-face interview, the first question would be, well, when can we see you live? <laughs> and of course, we didn't have a band and we weren't uh, as equipped as the quick were uh, to play and sing our own songs. So yes, as you suggest, it was a problem, but... Um, we were already working with Gary Stevenson uh, and Dave West, his sidekick keyboard player, who is a huge unsung hero in our momentary success. <laughs> and uh, we were already working with them, um, making eight-track demos. And we had managed to sign to a publishing company on the strength of just two or three of these extremely good-sounding um, eight-track demos. Gary was already... Um, a burgeoning producer. And so those uh, demos got us through the door uh, at a publishing company, ATV Music, inside us, bless them. Uh, and uh, we invested most of that advance in synthesizers um, and carried on writing. And uh, one of the good things about signing with ATV is that they immediately put us in the studio where we did eventually record the first Go West album. Uh, They would put us in that studio for a day with an engineer each time we had a song to record. Um, And Richard particularly was in his element because 
unlike me, Richard knows no fear and uh, had no problem with um, producing our demos. I mean, I was in there arguing with him every step of the way, but uh, uh, if he hadn't had such a can-do attitude, um, we might not have been able to make such good use of that opportunity. But, no, yeah, days in a 24-track studio paid for by someone else yeah. were – uh, yeah, it was an exciting time. Yeah, I've interviewed lots of 80s artists over the years, and there was definitely this element of, of record labels and publishers taking a punt, perhaps in a way that they obviously don't do anymore. And it enabled uh, artists like yourselves to live that dream. They, they they take a punt on a limited demo, and in your case, not even having seen you play together as, as a duo. And also one of the other themes that comes through when, when talking to artists from that era is that they have all, I would say, bar perhaps Duran Duran, said that they spent much of their early success simply not believing that this was happening to them. Yeah, I would say that's true in my case as well. I mean, I remember um, when the first single came out, you know, in my imagination, we would maybe get in the top 100, we'd do some gigs, build a following, and all of that kind of thing. And we close our eyes, it was top five in the UK. and We were very definitely up and off and running and uh, yeah it was a that 1985 from the spring of 1985 was something of a whirlwind definitely and of course that was the huge hit but am i right in saying that it was actually call me that you'd written wanting it to be the best most commercial biggest hit song ever that's exactly right that was the mindset i mean i wasn't thinking a big hit but the mantra that we constantly heard from labels was we like what you're doing but we don't hear a single um and to be to be somewhat fair uh to labels the version of we close our eyes that we were probably playing them as a demo was quite substantially different from the the, the version of the song that go west fans might be familiar with but yes we came away from one of those unsuccessful a and r meetings uh <laughs> saying right we need to we need to write something that's really really commercial um and call me was our effort at doing so and it was the song that got us through the door and when we finally signed to chrysalis as you intimated earlier they obviously felt that call me was going to be the hit single uh, for reasons best known to them, they feared that it might get lost in some early year shuffle. So they invited Richard and me to pick our choice of song for the first single. And We Close Our Eyes was definitely the song that he and I felt most positive about. So that was our first single, and we were immediately vindicated because it was the most successful song from the album. Of course, the, the the problem with first albums, or indeed the good thing about first albums, is that you've got all the time in the world, i.e. your entire life up to that point, to get to the point of releasing them. They're, they're a life's work. And then you come to a second album, which is a whole nother problem, because you've got much less time to get it right and find new ideas. We we use the phrase, the difficult second album, but it is very much a thing, and it, and it was a thing for you guys, wasn't it? It was exactly right. Um, yes, we, we the, the process, and certainly there is, already a retrospective box set around the first go west album which of course occasioned me to be listening to those recordings and those demos 30 years on and realizing how many times for example we recorded we close our eyes in various different forms and uh yeah it it, it was years effectively in the making uh we had had some success so there was a degree of pressure for that reason and also um People may not remember, but it was a long time ago. 
but um, the pop magazines of the time, Smash Hits, Number One, those kinds of publications, uh, sort of unexpectedly we found ourselves going to photo shoots for these magazines, and uh, and that was the first time anyone had applied makeup to my face mm -hmm. um, because, of course, that was the thing in the day there. And, uh, you know, I had no idea. Does that look good? I don't know. In, um, and so the reason I say that is because, though it might seem obvious now, uh, with hindsight, we were not as in touch with how we were being marketed as a very much as a pop band, whereas our sensibilities were coming from the West Coast music that we've yeah. been listening to, um, Steely Dan, the Doobie Brothers, these kinds of artists, super unfashionable in the UK, <laughs> particularly at the end of the of the punk uh, explosion. But that was those were our musical sensibilities, and so. I say all this because when we came to start writing songs from the second album and realizing that we had been marketed in this way and probably entirely self-destructively, we, uh, we decided that we would try to make a more adult, sophisticated, I don't know what the rule, yeah, if you like, yes. I mean, we, we, we were in a position where we could hire Randy Brecker to come and play flugelhorn or a trap, for example, these kinds of things. Um, and, uh, and we definitely searched around for different subject matter uh, and love songs. And I know that Gary has spoken in an interview uh, outside of the Go West bubble, as it were, complaining that, you know, we didn't write any love songs for the second Go West <laughs> album, which is not entirely true, actually, as I now know, because we have recently completed uh, the upcoming retrospective box set for the Dancing on the Couch, to our difficult second album. Mm. Um, and that was, again, a, a sort of a re-education going back to that time and remembering why we did this and what the motivation for that was. Um, but, yeah, there's no question that not only were we did we have much more of a time limit, as you said yourself, but I think also we were we were not as clear in, in our direction or our focus uh, of what we were doing. Um, and we certainly took, even though um, I think we were writing, we were supposedly writing songs for the Dancing on the Couch album for seven or eight months, we were pretty slow even then. But then, of course, we've been very slow on the first album. It's just that no one knew about <laughs> no it until it was out, as you said. Yeah, It's clear, as you say, that, that you struggled a little bit and perhaps lost a little bit of focus. And, and it seems like the record label did the same. They, they didn't really know what to do with you. So you both ended up in America. And correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it a chance conversation uh, of Richard, your other half, uh, which led to the next breakthrough, uh, The King of Wishful Thinking? Yeah, we... Um when uh, in 1985, when the first album came out, as soon as we had success, um, they shipped us off to America because, of course, America was the biggest record market in the world at a time when records were a thing and that you actually sold physical products. Yeah. And so if you got anything away anywhere, the next step would be to go immediately to America and see if you could possibly break that market. Uh, which we didn't quite manage to do. We Close Our Eyes was just outside the 40 when um, our record label decided to put their pre-Christmas budget into Barney the Purple Dinosaur, <laughs> who went on to be a huge hit. And uh, unfortunately, we did not. Um, so yes, as you say, um, after a year in the wilderness, after the ice-cold reaction to Dancing on the Couch, 
um, we found ourselves in the same hotel where we would spent most of 1985, Le Park in West Hollywood. Yep. So we were in the bar anyway of Le Park and Robert Palmer's band were in town. Donnie Wynn uh, was playing drums with Robert Palmer at the time. And we were all there sipping our Cuban breezes or whatever <laughs> the hell we were drinking. And, uh, and yeah, Richard was telling our tale of woe. And then he said, uh, well, we'll be fine with the Kings of Wishful Think. And I thought, well, that sounds like a good title for a song. Um, and we had recently met um, an expatriate Englishman, Martin Page, who lives still in uh, in the Valley, California. Martin uh, had a songwriting partnership with Bernie Taupin for a while, and the first two songs he wrote were, I think it was These Dreams, which was a massive hit for R, and we built this city on rock and roll, which, yeah. you know, people either love or hate it for. But um, so Martin knew what he was doing, and Richard and I, and I had already done one songwriting collaboration with Martin, which is a song called That's What Love Can Do, which made the Indian Summer album. But Martin is a, is a very clever guy. And uh, I said to Richard, this guy has listened to our music. He knows where we're coming from. He's got the cut of the cloth. And you should definitely come and meet him and see if we can uh, write a song together. And we did. Set, we wrote several songs with Martin, one of which was, not sure if it was the first song, but anyway, one of them was The King of Wishful Thinking. And we were at that point, at the very beginning of writing the songs for what became our Indian Summer album. Yeah. And again, as I, as I mentioned earlier, Richard being a lot more, I'll just say confident because I want to be polite. Yeah. Um, we're a lot more <laughs> confident than I. And when we, when we, um, when we, when we had the demo of the King of Wishful Thinking, he said, well, that's it. Yeah. And of course, I, 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 knowing, from brutal past experience that you never can tell yeah. anything can happen. So I'm much more um, skeptical. But um, he called the label and said, we've got a hit. And they said, oh, I have you now. Uh, so, and then they heard the song. And to my surprise, they agreed. Uh, yeah, that sounds like a hit song to us. And it was just at that time that EMI America, I think that was the label, yeah. were putting together the soundtrack album for the the film Pretty Woman with Julia Roberts and Richard Gere. At the time, the working title for the film was 3000 which I believe is the amount of money that Richard Gere's character offers to pay Julia yeah. Roberts to yeah. spend the week with him. But we didn't know that. We didn't know anything about the film other than it had Richard Gere and Julia Roberts in it, and it was called 3000 And Richard immediately assumed that it was a science fiction film, and also, here we were, after a long period of inactivity, finally getting going again. And Richard said, oh, no, let's not, no, let's not get involved. Don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be, anyway, thankfully, he was talked down. Uh, and the rest, as they say, is somewhat history. Well, well they, they had quite the roster at the time, didn't they, for that soundtrack? Because they had Roxette, they had Natalie Cole, they had the uh, the Chili Peppers, I think they had David Bowie, Robert Palmer. It was, it was an astonishing amalgam of great artists for what turned out to be a huge film. That's right. Uh, and of course, none of those songs were written with the film or the story uh, of the film in mind. They were, it was a collection of like a showcase of the artists that were attached to the label, as you say. Um, and I know that uh, Robert Palmer particularly was paid an enormous amount of money uh, to write and record his song Life in Detail, I think is the track yeah. on the album. Um, 
And obviously, uh, the label were hoping for Addicted to Love love, Part 2, which had been a massive hit in America and around the world. Um, And so for all their (laughs) money, they didn't didn't get what they considered to be a commercial song. That's right. And whereas, as you say, we were very small fry in in the company of artists that you just listed there. But what we did have was a commercial song. And so after Natalie Cole and Roxette, I think, we all, we kind of promoted up the promotional ladder regarding the album, and we found ourselves um, doing a radio promo tour of America. I'm not even sure if such things exist now because the world is all and the record industry is so different. But in those days, you would travel from city to city and go into the radio stations to meet the program director to try and ingratiate him mm-hmm. enough that he would play your record and, and A-list it on his station. Um, that's how it all worked back then in a very loose kind of sense. Yeah. Um, so we spent some several weeks actually traveling around America, but we certainly didn't have very much of the material for the next album but it all got put on hold while we went around America promoting that song. But, of course, it was finally, after some years of trying, it was our first US hit single. Absolutely. Look, we'll talk about the um, the solo stuff in a moment, but I just want to look a little bit at your relationship uh, as a as a pair, your relationship with Richard, which you've alluded to on a couple of occasions. And and I was slightly surprised because you were saying that you're quite different in some ways. You've chosen your words um, very carefully about, about your old friend. And... See, I've recently interviewed um, Ed and Gary from China Crisis uh, for this very podcast, and they were saying how opposite they are and how this has always helped them navigate their relationship and their friendship and their musical relationship as well. Um, but I've also seen both you and Richard say that you're both control freaks, and I wonder whether that similarity has actually made it harder for you to function as a pair or whether the differences you've also alluded to during this interview make it easier. We are very definitely both control freaks, um, and that has really made things difficult only in the sense that there are a number of people on the periphery of any band who have an idea of how things should be. Um, and it, it often has very little to do with the music, um, which has always been the absolute priority for Richard and for me. We've always wanted to be in the studio. I'll give you an example. I'm trying to think of the song, but uh, I think it might have been... Anyway, it was from the Indian Summer album. Yeah. And a very famous uh, US remixer, whose name I won't mention, um, uh, remixed the song without our knowledge and added um, a guitar solo. Right. <laughs> and we were beyond horrified. Yeah. And they just, uh, that, that the idea that anyone would add any kind of performance to something that we had written <laughs> without our being there to interfere and argue and, and you know, negotiate every single note. But uh, where our relationship has changed is that we we spent our so-called formative years before we really started writing together, listening to a lot of music. And uh, my uh, particular, the band of which I was a huge fan at the time was the 70s rock band Free. Paul Rogers was the singer, and um, and uh, my listening horizon was quite narrow. It was free and bands that sounded like free, <laughs> really. And uh, obviously, you know, I had had a, a, an immeasurably uh, – um, I was hugely influenced by Motown because that was the soundtrack to my own teenage years. So, of course, you know, I was aware of Stevie Wonder and those fantastic albums he made in the 70s. Um, Obviously, I was aware of those albums, but 
when I started knocking around with Richard, he would uh, introduce me, for example, to Steely Dan and the Debbie Brothers and Michael McDonald and these kinds of bands that had keyboard players, which, uh, which, uh, if you're a free fan, you start keyboard straight. You know, yeah. no, no, no keyboards, mate. Just bass, drums, okay. and guitar, and vocal effects. So, yeah. So he he introduced, and we, so what? Where I'm trying to get to is, we had an enormous amount of common ground. You know, Richard is a diehard, passionate Todd Rundgren fan, right? Yeah. Of whom I knew very little. You know, and again, Richard would play me this stuff. Uh, and of course, that was a big influence. And and so when we did start to write, we were more or less often on the same page. But I would say that since those days, Richard's um, predilection towards art and things not being so tidy yeah. uh, is has is a different direction than my own. Who knew that two grown men over the course of nearly 40 years might have changed their individual music taste a tiny bit and might have grown a tiny bit apart over the course of four decades? Yeah, well, that, you're, that's it. That's exactly right. You know, relationships do change, you know, and we are still working together. And on a good day, we can have a good laugh. And uh, I feel very lucky still to have the opportunity to make a fool of myself in front of audience <laughs> and actually get paid for it. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's like a marriage without some of the best bits. And uh, certainly at the end of 93, going into the spring of 94, um, we had been in one another's pockets so much of the time, whether it was writing or recording or promoting or touring. Um, and uh, I certainly had had enough. And I think, you know, I think Richard would agree that, you know, a bit of space was required. I just don't think he expected me to leave the band. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and plow your own course. As with any good marriage, time, space, and a little bit of uh, reconciliation. Usually, well, we quite like our artists on uh, Turn Up The Volume to, to do a bit of a live session for us. That would be so unfair on you, Peter, because as we've mentioned, you're surrounded by boxes. You don't even you don't even know where your plugs are, let alone your guitars and, and any musical instruments. But you've got something that you can let us uh, listen to, Peter. Do you want to just uh, introduce it? Sure. Yes. Uh, earlier this year, um, I did a small tour um, promoting my solo album, my first solo album for 10 years. I put together a fantastic band and singers, and we recorded um, some of the live shows. Uh, so here, for your entertainment, I hope, is uh, a live recording. This is Brave New World. <laughs> I remember, I remember. 
glass shiny glossy warm everything that we would expect from you You mentioned it was 10 years between the previous solo album and that one was it because it was i don't know hard to find the motivation or or even the need to to go again and and hence the delay well there's no question that uh making an album in these days especially when you're no longer 21 (laughs) is a huge uh labor of love you've got to have the will and i think that uh without pointing any fingers Richard, for example, is much less motivated to spend the time and the energy and the money um, to make a record which no one may ever hear. So uh, I didn't make Seaglass with the expectation that uh, it would have a big audience. Of course, anyone making music (laughs) hopes that people will get to hear it. And uh, I did uh, manage to get going and write a song very, very slowly uh, in my inimitable way. Because it takes me a while to build up the demo picture for all the reasons I've said that I'm I'm not a, a great guitarist, I'm not a great keyboard player, but I know what I want to hear and I've got a good ear and hopefully I can sing a bit. So, and you're a perfectionist, uh, so that whole cocktail. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that. But um, yeah, the, the first track um, was called Too Far Gone and um, 
I sent it to my manager uh, when it was done. Uh, and he was the most positive about that song that I can ever remember <laughs> about anything I've ever done. He's quite, you know, he's not, he's not gushing with his enthusiasm about my creative efforts. I won't speak for Richard, yeah. but he was so positive. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, um, so one thing led to another. And over the course of the next two years, probably, because it's taken that long. And, you know, again, while you're sharing audio files by the internet, I know I'm not the only artist that worked in this way during lockdown, but um, it takes a while. And of course, all the time I was spending money, um, never expecting anyone to do anything for nothing. Um, so it, it, fast forward to the completion of the album, you spent tens of thousands of pounds making this thing. And you really don't know um, whether anyone's ever yeah. going to eat it. But, um, but as I say, that wasn't my prime motivation. Uh, I'm told I'm better when I've got something to do mm. by my other half. who was probably glad to see the back of the I was going to say, there, there speaks the voice of a woman. I could hear that. In the, yes, yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, uh, I know I'm, I'm really proud of the record, not least because there is one cover on the album, but I wrote the other nine songs on my own which I hadn't done really for quite some time. Uh, and at the end of it, um, I thought, yeah, you know what? I mean, honestly, sometimes you, I mean, I know this is very much the same for a lot of creatives. Some of the time you're l looking at listening to your work and thinking, yeah, you know what? That's, that sounds all right. And then another day you'll go, oh my God, this is terrible. No, this is just, there's nothing. Now, often, you know, I was working with producers just pr uh, remotely making this album. And when I finally had tinkered with the demo for weeks on end, probably to the point where I thought, okay, I I'm not making it any better. Now. Yeah. I would typically send it either to Gary or to John Mitchell. He produced four tracks on the album and say, have I got anything here? And fortunately the response was almost Peter. always, yes, wow. sounds good. Now, Peter, you've been incredibly generous uh, with your time, not least as you've got moving trucks and boxes and all sorts of things are going on at home. You've also provided me with one of my favourite lines so far. What are we into? Episode nine, I think, of Turn Up the Volume, which was, I'm not going to point any fingers, but Richard is definitely one of my favourite <laughs> lines of, 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 of recent times. Uh, it's going to be a, a slightly longer roll call than usual because of the following. So, Go West, 17th of December at the Stables is sold out. However, um, you might want to keep an eye on the website. There are sometimes returns uh, or call the box office uh, for exactly the same reason. You never know. You might be lucky, but it is sold out. And then Peter back on September the 21st, 2024 uh, with his solo show. Uh, and what kind of size of band? Uh, six piece. So yes, typically lose money on tour. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, it's a, it's a fantastic band though. I'm so, you know, I, I often think people... They come to see an artist, uh, and that's great. I'm obviously, I'm pleased about that. And, you know, they get to hear this or that artist sing. But in, to my mind, certainly in my own case, I, I couldn't do this. I couldn't present my album without a fantastic band, and they are awesome. So, um, yeah, if you... If you're interested in anything to do with the backing of the, you know, it's a great band. Stables.org for tickets for both events. And for you, Peter, where's the best place to find you? Uh, that's a very good question. I'm on Twitter, uh, Peter John Cox, I think. Um, Facebook, official Peter Cox, that kind of thing, one way or another. Uh, that's where I am. Peter, I've loved chatting to you. Really appreciate your time here on Turn Up the Volume. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. 
coming up in December at the Stables in Milton Keynes. My name is Alison Young and these are my programmer picks of the month for December. My first pick is a seasonal offering which will immerse you in the magic, myths and pageantry of Yuletide some seven centuries ago. On 12th December, the medieval babes bring a glorious mix of well-known Christmas carols, reinvented folk tunes and settings of medieval texts and poetry, accompanied by a dazzling array of joyous period instruments, from babkites to bombard, timbrel to tabor. On this, their annual Wheel to pilgrimage, the babes mainly visit churches, perhaps fitting for a group originally conceived when a group of friends broke into a cemetery and sang together clad in white gowns and crowns of ivy. Continuing in this spirit of theatre and pageantry, the evening at the stables will begin just before doors at 7.30 with a short, torchlit musical procession winding its way to the front entrance. Audiences can then indulge in the spirit of Christmas with a warming glass of mulled wine. The Christmas theme is also celebrated in Stage 2 on 10th December with a long overdue visit by the award-winning singer-songwriter and fiddle player Bella Hardy, this time playing in a duo with another Stables favourite, guitarist Sam Carter. Hailing from Edale in the Peak District, Bella embraces the tradition of gathering to sing carols in a spirit of hope and community. So, expect an atmospheric evening in Stage 2 of North Derbyshire carols, well-known classics, and the odd pop tune for good measure. My final pick brings sunshine and warmth of Central Africa to the stables in the depths of the dark winter months. On Wednesday 13th December, in collaboration with our dear friends at Promoters African Night Fever, we are heartened to welcome back the King of Sukus, the mighty Kando Bangla Man, this time accompanied by fellow Congolese artists, Kazai Masai. Expect to hear the traditional folkloric sounds passed down from generation to generation, but infused with infectious dance grooves, driving percussion, and song lyrics which represent the rich cultural diversity of a region where over 400 languages are spoken. That's it for this month, and may I wish you a very Merry Christmas, and I look forward to welcoming you back to the stables in 2024. Happy New Year. For more information, head over to stables.org where you can also find out how you can help by becoming a friend of the stables, volunteering, or making a donation to the charity. To follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, just search for Stables MK. Easing you towards Christmas, it's the December festive edition of Turn Up the Volume from the Stables in Milton Keynes. And if the festive season for you is synonymous with friends and fun and singing and dancing and dressing up, well, my next guest may well be exactly what you need. Mary Wilson is bringing her very merry Christmas party to the Stables on Saturday the 16th of December, complete with her eight-piece band, The New Wilsations, one of this country's great voices. The Neesden Queen of Soul has been doing this for 50 years now and she joins me from her home in London. Mary, really nice to have you on Turn Up The Volume. Thank you. Hello there. The the only person I've ever interviewed who has three actual former prime ministers in her name. I know. Mary Macmillan Ramsey Wilson. I know. I, I went to Wikipedia and, and I was I was checking dates just to work out whether your two middle names were actually uh, based on the prime ministers. But I, I, I think they crossed. I don't, I don't think it's quite that, is it? No, I'll, it's a Scottish thing. So Ramsey was my mother's maiden name. Her name was Helen Ramage Fife Ramsey. So she had the same thing, Ramage and Fife from her. So Ramsey is my mother's maiden name. And Macmillan was my, I think my dad's mother's or something ridiculous maiden name. uh, It's it's a thing they do in Scotland. Although my sister's called Helen Ann and my brother's called John Andrew. So I don't know why I got lumbered with it. But yeah, 
Mary McMillan, Ramsey Wilson. It sounds kind of posh, though, which, of course, I'm not. <laughs> Look, when I was, uh, when I was nine... Um, uh, just what I always wanted came out. I was at school, I was at Mary Hill School in what I think we used to call the third year back in those days. Uh, and to this day, I remember girlfriends at my little junior school, they were imitating it. And by it, of course, I mean the hair. Everyone, everyone wanted to be a little bit Mary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it certainly got everyone's attention, didn't it? And, uh, I mean, I was always into, you know, glamour and dressing up and, you know, I, I used to, you, you remember on Saturday after, afternoons, there was always a black and white film on and on Sundays and on a Saturday night. Um, but I would see someone like Lana Turner, um, and think, well, in fact, my friend said, she said, you know what you said to me once when you were 12? We were watching a Lana Turner film and she was wearing a gold lame house coat and you said, Apparently, I said, um, oh, I'd really like one of those, you know, just to lounge around the house in. <laughs> and there I was sitting in a house in Neasda with no central heating, no bathroom. And I'm saying that, you know, but so that, that was what I was aspiring to. And then, of course, so there was that sort of Hollywood glamour. And then you put it with the likes of Dusty Springfield and people like that. And that's kind of how, how I came up with it. And, and also, I have a sister who's eight years older than me and we shared a bedroom and she had this false piece that she would wear. Um, that she would, uh, she used to uh, put rollers in it and then get it all ready while we were watching the Count of Monte Cristo yeah. on a Sunday afternoon. She'd tie it to her leg <laughs> and brush it, and then um, yeah, put it put it on her head, and off she'd go on, on a date with somebody who drove a Sunbeam Alpine, as I recall. <laughs> but anyway, so that's that's where all that came from uh, was was the glamour of it, you know. And and of course, my beehive at the beginning was nowhere near that size. I, it just that it got. The more well-known I became, the higher the beehive got because Peter, who did it for me, uh, I, I used to do it myself to begin with. And then Peter, who I'm still very good friends with, he uh, travelled with me and used to do my hair. And it just got bigger and bigger, really. We put birds and things in the back. I mean, not real ones, um, all kinds of things, you know. But it was great fun, but it was a bit exhausting because I always had to get up much earlier than everybody else to get my hair done. And I remember you you, you did use, as you say, you used to put things in the back of your hair. You mentioned birds there, but they were all manner of the, uh, there were photos and stuff. What was the strangest thing that, that you put in there? Uh, oh, gosh, do you know what? That's a really good question. I'd have to, I'd have to really think about that. I know we put birds and we put flowers. Um, uh, I, I can't, I really can't remember. We might have put some weird brooches. In there, I know that Peter, when we were in Paris um, touring, and our rooms had these beautiful chandeliers, and we got on the tour bus, and he said, "What do you think of these?" And he had these earrings on that he'd taken some of the the, the crystal drops off the chandeliers and made earrings out of them. Mm-hmm. And I think we put those in the uh, in the back of the beehive a couple of times to just to get a bit of glitter. Was there ever like a secret message? Were you ever trying to say something to someone? Perhaps someone you had your eyes on. Oh no, uh, but uh, there's, well, there, there would have been an idea. That's a good idea, but it's a bit too late now. But that, yes, that would have been quite, I, I could have put little notes in there, couldn't yeah, I? Like secret notes. I absolutely promised myself that I wouldn't go straight into talking about the hair. And here we are talking about the hair. Look, I, I, will, I will ask one thing about the hair because I, I, luckily for you and indeed for our listeners, we're not on video right now because the world is not ready for that. But you would see that I don't have what is technically called a, called a head of hair. So I, I can't really talk with any great uh, authority about hair. But I do have a, a girlfriend who's a ballet dancer. And I know a thing or two about tight buns and pins. It, it, it takes yes. time time but also it hurts and that's just for a ballet bun so if you multiply that tenfold for the marry at the beginning of her career and 30 fold for the marry three or four years later um yeah were you walking around with one big headache 
Well, not really. The worst, the, the, the thing was, you get an itchy head. So I used to carry a knitting needle and shove it in, 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 into it to scratch my head. The thing is, with ballet dancers, they have a very tight bun and your hair is scraped back tightly. And that does give you a headache. Whereas mine was much looser, really, because it was like a, it was like a sculpture, wasn't it? It was a piece yeah. of architecture. So, um, but, but I was glad to take it out at night. You know, I've, there's a fantastic photograph I've got in a hotel where I had an early call or something. And I thought, I'm not taking my beehive out. I'm just going to try and sleep in it without squashing it. And I had my head slightly hanging off the yeah, edge of the imagine. bed. And one of the band came in and took a photograph and I've got it. It looks like the elephant man, this huge thing on the, on the pillow, you know, it's very funny. In uh, next month's episode of Turn Up the Volume, we will find someone to see if they can do ballet wearing a Mary Wilson beehive. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, <laughs> that could be. <laughs> Let, let's talk a little bit about about that early period. Uh, you and the Will Stations. I only discovered this morning that Michelle Collins, Cindy Beale, Michelle Collins, um, was one of them. I, I didn't realize that till today. Yeah. How did you all come together? And, and practically speaking, how did you manage and, and I guess fund a band of so many people? Well, that word fund, yes. Uh, why did I do that? Well, um, basically what happened was I was I was working in an office job, hating it, thinking, when am I going to be on top of the pops? I used, that's what I used to think. All the, and I was convinced I was going to be on it. I mean, I, I, if I hadn't been, then I would have egg on my face. But I, I was convinced it was going to happen. And so I was doing various bits and bobs back in vocals here and there. And this guy, Graham, had a studio called Elephant Studios in Elephant and Castle. And he called me and said, uh, look, there's these, there's these three guys. They've got this song. They've tried three or four singers and it's just not working. But I think it's really, it's kind of Tamla Motown and that's what you're into, your soul voice, you know. Yeah. So I went along, met Todd Taylor, who wrote Just What I've Always Wanted, and Paul Bultitude, who became my drummer, and another guy, another drummer called Chris Wilde, sang this song. Collecting and it was great, drummers. You know? Collecting drummers. I love drummers. I love drummers. I'm very fussy about drummers. <laughs> anyway, um... So we he, we did a few more tracks and everything, and, uh, and we ended up like Annie Nightingale played it on Radio One, and it was like, oh dear, we. And I said, I want to do some gigs. I want to do some gigs. I want to play live, you know. And Tot said, Well, you're going to need a really big band. I said, Well, so be it. We'll have a big band. And the first night we had thirteen piece <laughs> band. Of course, it got reduced very much to a twelve piece, but. Um, and it was just, I mean, to begin with, it was my two friends, Janet and Diana, who I went to school with. They were doing the backing vocals at the beginning because it was like, anybody? Okay, come on. Um, and then I think Terry, who, Terry was Hank Beehive because everyone had a name. It was yeah. Harry, Larry, Barry, Gary, Kerry and Jim. Then there was Hank Beehive, Kurt Lamore and Wilbur G. Force. And <laughs> then uh, the two girls were Mandy and Candy or later on Cinderella and Barbara. Yeah. So Mandy and Candy, that became, so Terry knew Michelle Collins and uh, he asked her to come along. She needed, she needed an equity card because she wanted to be an actress. She didn't really want to be a singer, but she looked great. Uh, and another friend, Mandy. So, uh, yes, yeah, so, so, so Michelle was Candy and uh, Amanda was Mandy. And uh, so that, that's all that came about. And then later on, Julia Forden was one of my backing singers. Uh, I mean, we're still very good yeah. friends. She lives in LA now, but, um, yeah, there's been a, a few, a few people, you know, I mean, my friend Mike said recently, he said, you know what? I've yet to meet someone who either wasn't a Will Station or at least didn't, didn't sleep with one. And I said, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's very good. Or, or is it like, like those sort of epic gigs, you know, I don't know, like Springsteen at, uh, in Hammersmith where basically there were 2,000 people there, but fundamentally there's half a million people there because everyone was at that gig or thought they were. Does everyone say they were once a Will Station, even if they weren't one? Well, 
Probably. And a lot, there were a lot of people who became world stations by just getting on the stage. They turn up in a tuxedo like the boys were wearing and they get on stage and they dance with us. And it was amazing. I mean, one of the first gigs we did, though, was at Lee, Lee's Cliff Hall in, uh, on the coast. I'm trying to think where, exactly where it is, like Folkestone or somewhere. And there were 12 people on the stage and 10 people in the audience. Mm. So we all got off the stage and shook hands with everybody. It's hilarious. I mean, things did improve a bit uh, after that, of course, the, in the in the audience uh, stakes. But, um, it, yeah, I mean, you don't want to think about making money if you've got a band that size. No, that was my point. It's just, just running that it, is... It was crazy. And we'd, we'd be doing gigs with John Otway and Wild Willie Barrett or, or orchestral manoeuvres in the dark or something. And I think, wait a minute, there's two or three of those and there's 12 of us and we're getting the same money. Hmm. Yeah. Not a great idea. Spot, spot However, the math problem. Yeah, but it was it was such great fun. It was it was like being on a school journey the whole time. Yeah. I remember no mobile phones then. You'd get on the bus. We'd meet the bus at my house in Neeston because it was nearest the M1. My mum would make scones for everybody. Everyone would get a bag of scones. Um, and off we'd go. You couldn't be contacted, which was brilliant. Yeah. You know, when I look back, you know, you, 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 that, you can't. Do that now. Everyone can contact you at any time. You know, I'm not surprised that here we are a few minutes in. You've talked about fun because it seems to me that's always underpinned what you do. That there was a headline I think on on the front page of one of the Sunday papers. Uh, Mary Wilson, I'd rather muck about than be sexy. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I do get that sense that that having fun and as you said there, mucking about. Although with it being a Sunday tabloid in the 80s, that may not have been a direct quote. Um, it has been really important for you. Yeah, because I think. I think that also comes from watching TV, having parents that were in the Second World War. My father was, was his, his ship was sunk at Tobruk and he's trod water for six hours, you know, I mean, th- th- that kind of a, a life. So therefore, he always used to talk to me about how going to the pictures, which we said back then, going to the cinema, um, th- that was pure escapism, Busby Barclay films and things like that, you know. And so I, I, I've always thought that if you go to a gig, you should, there should be some kind of joy. And, you know, I, I, I'm not, I don't want to go and see, I, obviously I do want to hear sad songs, but I want to, I want a mixture, you know, I want a bit of both really. Especially today, um, especially today. Especially today, you know, like let's just, let's, let's have a bit of a party and, and, you know, I mean, some of the songs I'm, I'm doing for the, for the Christmas show and even when I'm not doing the Christmas show, some of the soul songs I'm doing, people know them and they sing along and I think it makes them feel good. Yeah. You know, singing is very, very good for you. Um, it, it's, it's very healing, you know, and uh, when people all sing together and dance together, it's a wonderful thing. It doesn't mean that I don't take my, my art, if you like, seriously and my singing seriously and that I practice and warm up and do all that. And I'm, I'm very fussy about what songs I sing and. That that is all taken very seriously. But when I get on the stage, it's like I'm I'm an entertainer, really. And and I've always been that's been my forte is playing live. I feel very relaxed on stage. I don't feel I know a lot of people, um, there's a guitarist I know who is really, really quiet and shy. But when he gets on stage, he's like Pete Townsend. It's like, whoa, you're like two different people. But I, I don't think I'm that different when I get on stage. The person you're talking to now, Nick, is the same person. I don't change that much. I, d- I don't know why that is. But I, we, I chat a lot. But you, who'd have thought really? me? I'd... Really? <laughs> Watching me? the clock tick here and thinking, really? Yeah. Mary Wilson yeah. chatting. Yeah. So I always talk about what I did that day or <laughs> tell silly pit stories about the Bee Gees or whatever, you know. Um, 
and it, it makes them laugh. So I can make people laugh and then maybe make them cry by doing a sad song and not because it's so terrible, but because it's very sad. <laughs> and, 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 and of course, ultimately, as, as consumers, as, as theatre goers, concert goers, gig goers, what we want is connection. And whether it's you on Top of the Pops or you at Ronnie Scott's or you play musical theatre, that's what it's about. It's about stagecraft, which is stagecraft no matter what the discipline and connecting with the person and the people who are sat or stood in front of you. Yeah. Yeah, that you're absolutely spot on. Uh, the communication thing is so important, you know, that you're that you're touching people and you feel like you're all there together and that there isn't a wall between you and them. I mean, um I mean I, I went into jazz for a quite a long time, twelve, fourteen years. I was, you know, playing at Ronnie's and uh, Ronnie Scott's that is, sorry, in, in London and doing jazz festivals and, and that's how I learnt my chops actually. Yeah. Did it take you that by... long to convince the uh, the jazz aficionados that, you know, you, you could actually sing? Yeah, it, it, it was. Uh, uh, the musicians were all lovely and very welcoming. And I learned so much from people like Guy Barker, who was my trumpet player, and Simon Hale, who was my keyboard player, who's now doing strings for all kinds of people and, 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 and theatre and stuff like that. I learned so much. But I mean, it, ha- it happened kind of by mistake because I, um, I usually the record company drops the artist, but <laughs> I did it the other way around. I, and I said, you know, I, I, I said to my manager, I, I, I've got to get away from this. It's not what I wanted. I, I didn't want to be like a pop, pop, pop star. You know, I wanted to be a great singer and I'm not, I'm going down the wrong road here. So what happened was I, I, I legally, I couldn't sign with another record company for about 18 months. And my sax player said, you're quite good at singing jazz. Why don't we put a little jazz quartet together? And so I would turn up at wine bars in Covent Garden, uh, and this was like 1985. So I was still quite well known, and I would turn up and just sing some standards, you know, because you, you can't just sing them. You've got to get inside them and really learn how to sing those songs. You know, they're difficult. Um, anyway, so uh, that, that, that's what happened. Um, and I've completely forgotten why I'm. T- uh, so <laughs> I, was, I, I, I was saying that it, it, it took them time, them as in the, the jazz fraternity, to actually oh, accept the yes. Mary Wilson pop singer as a as a jazz singer. Yes, and I, and I have a quite a good little story about that. I supported Stan Getz at the Royal Festival Hall, and my agent Brian Theobald, who uh, who is not no longer with us, but he represented like Sarah Vaughan and all kinds of people, mm. and uh, we became really good friends. He was great. So he put me on and he told me that a few people phoned him up and said, oh, what have you got her on for? You know, she's one person. So well, she's a pop tart, isn't she? I don't know why you've got her on. And it was like, oh. So I walked on and it was packed, you know, in the festival hall where they have the audience mm-hmm. behind the stage as well. That's how busy it was. They breathe down your neck, I, don't they? Yeah. And I walked on and I said to the audience, well, my agents asked me to drop the cartwheels from the act this evening. Oh, stony silence. Oh, no. You know, apart from my agent who was laughing in the wings, it was like, oh, God, they're a real serious jazz audience, you know. And I, I did my best, but, but you know, but I'm, if I hadn't done those years, I wouldn't be as, as, I wouldn't be as good as I've become because it, it, I had to learn and I had to work at it. And I, I'm really glad I did that, you know, because I didn't want to, you know, I don't mind doing the odd 80s gig. And I, and if people want to do that, that's absolutely fine. But I didn't want that to be all I wanted to, to do. I, I've always wanted to do new stuff, you know, and try different things. You know, there's loads of things. I mean, I'd love to make a Latin album, you know. I don't know, I don't know if I'm going to live long enough to do all these things, but there you go. So um, I'm glad I did it. And, and so now my show is a mixture of jazz, pop and soul. It's like a hybrid of, of all of that, you know. It's basically 50 years of you coming together in one musical event. Yeah, yeah. 
it, it is, and I suppose that's the same with with anybody, you know. And, and and when you do try and you know cast your net a bit wider and learn things and work with, I mean, my band, are, I've got just the best guys, you know. I mean, my my MD and keyboard player is a guy called Richard Cottle, who um, is and his brother on bass, Lawrence Cottle. And uh, when I tell people that they're in my band, other musicians usually, they go, wow, you've got right. the Cotton Brothers in your band. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, Richard's very um, modest. He never tells you anything. But, I mean, he toured in the 80s with David Bowie, you know. I mean, he's done he's done everything, you know. Yeah. And the same with Lawrence. You know, Lawrence has probably played the Staples countless times. Um, I've got a fantastic drummer. As I said, I'm very fussy about drummers. Yeah. I was obsessed why? with them. Well, why are you so fussy about it? I, well, I think... Do you know what I think it is? When I was 14, 13, 14, I was babysitting for this couple. And uh, <laughs> Why did I not realise that this was going to be a, a story as I asked the question? <laughs> so when you, were, when you were stories. 13 or 14, yeah. Yeah, uh, I used to babysit for this couple. And in our in, in our house, we had like the Beatles and the Bee Gees and Tamla Motown, things like that. So I, I, I was babysitting one night and I was looking through the record collection and I've, there were three records I found. One was Abraxas by Santana. Uh, one was the Chicago Transit Authority and one was Blood, Sweat and Tears. So I put the Chicago Transit Authority on. And this is not, if you leave me now, it's not It's not that 80s Chicago. They were one of the first bands um, to have horns and electric guitars. Right. You know, them and Blood, Sweat and Tears. So it was a new sound and I'd never heard anything like it. And the, the rhythm section to me was like, whoa, I, I really, really got into it. And then later on with Motown, you know, and the bass player James Jameson, and I really got into that. And then I heard um, Ed Green, who was Barry White's drummer. And I just thought, I mean, the drums on You're the First, The Last, My Everything are fantastic. They're just brilliant. And the whole album. And a couple of years ago, I was in, I was in LA and I was listening to Barry White. And I thought, oh, I wonder if Ed Green's around, you know, anywhere. And I found him on Facebook and we had a little conversation. No I was way. thrilled. Yeah. Great drummer. Great drummer. Because, you know, the bass and drums, like, if they're not right, it's, it, they drive everything, you know, and, and I love it. And the bit you're not saying is that we all know that the drummers are the crazies and you love a good personality, don't you? So you're always going to look for the ones with the, with, with the strong personalities. Yeah, yeah. Although the crazy one in, in the band is really Richard. He's a real performer. He's, he's, he's very... Uh, well, you'd have to see him, really. But uh, we have a bit of a double act going on, you know. You've thrown me a bit of a curveball because we, we do like uh, guests on Turn Up The Volume to to do a little bit of a session track or, or give us a track to play. And, and you've come up with, well, something very interesting with a great story behind it. Do you know, I'll, I'll just leave you to introduce it. Okay. Uh, this is a song I wrote for a TV show called The Young and the Restless in America. Well, what happened was my husband, who is a TV producer, was producing that very show. And uh, I was over there in L.A. with him, but I was just about to fly back to London. And he said, oh, we need a song for the show. He said uh, one of the characters who is 82, uh, the part she's playing, she has um, Alzheimer's and her three children who are now like in their 50s. They're trying to find the record of the song that she used to sing to them when they were little. So he said, we need a song that is kind of like a lullaby or like, you know, K Sarah Sarah. So no pressure there. Um, and he said, so do you think you could come up with that? And I said, well, I'll have a go. Cause sometimes when you've got a brief, it's a little bit easier. So I said, now thinking I've got a couple of months or something. Um, I'm traveling home on the Wednesday, arriving back on the Thursday. So I said, well, when do you need to buy? And he said, the weekend, the weekend. Ooh. Who am I? Paul McCartney. <laughs> so, um, 
anyway, somehow I did it. I, 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 I got back and I had these ideas. I sang it into my phone and we recorded it. And it is like a, like a little lullaby. And, and then I got nominated for an Emmy. I didn't win the Emmy, but I got nominated uh, for Best Song. So um, that was quite amazing. So that's what I'd like to play because a lot of people haven't heard this. I love you to the moon and back On a beam of light from a zodiac I love you just the way you are My little shooting star I love you till the sky falls down Till the sun burns out Till the air runs out
It's a great story behind that song, Marianne. Luckily for you, you've got a little bit more time to prepare for Saturday, the 16th of December, 8 o'clock kickoff. Mary Wilson, a very Merry Christmas party. What can we expect? Uh, well, I've got the eight-piece band that uh, I mentioned earlier. Fantastic band. We're going to be doing some soul numbers, some Christmas songs. Um, I've got four go-go dancers who will be doing a bit of a disco dancing class to begin with, and then they'll be on the stage with us for a few songs. Um, see what I mean? Entertainment. Uh, and then I've got uh, the Mike Flowers Pops. Mike Flowers did the uh, Wonderwall song, the Oasis yeah. song, uh, quite camp and everything. But he actually has a really beautiful voice. So he'll be doing some stuff. We'll be doing some stuff. To some songs together uh, and then I have a, a guy called Martin Green who's a DJ only plays vinyl and it'll be quite quite uh, old camp maybe in places uh, uh, Christmas records he'll be playing and uh, you know I might have a I might bring something as a little prize for the best dressed couple or I was going to like say that. is dressing up obligatory oh yeah come on it's Christmas you, you got to I think sequins are a must really <laughs> I've got loads of sequins for the for my performance, and I'm so looking forward to it because I've played the stables, but not for a long, long time. I, such a lovely venue, you know. It's um, I'm really excited about it actually, and it's perfect for a party. Stables.org for more information. Uh, there's a few tickets still available uh, for Mary Wilson. A very merry Christmas party, Saturday the 16th of December, at eight o'clock. As I say for the start of that, Mary, absolutely lovely to chat to you. More information about you uh, from your website. Yeah, marywilson.co.uk. It's all on there. Yeah. I hope you uh, have a great uh, show at the stables and, and I feel I can, I can actually wish you a Merry Christmas and, and lots of fun things for 2024. Thank you and, uh, and likewise to you. Thank you. Let's finish this December edition of Turn Up The Volume with, you've guessed it, a Christmas show, but in true stable style, this is no traditional pantomime we're talking about. Nope, take some jazz, a classic fairy tale, upcycled and recycled puppets and props and chuck in some very innovative theatre and you've got a magical production of Hansel and Gretel coming to the main stage at the stables just before Christmas. Brought to you by multi-award winning Boxtail Soup, it promises to be a joy for all ages, as I'm sure that Antonia and Noel, who make up Boxtail Soup, would agree. Thanks for joining me here on Turn Up The Volume. Noel, 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 Noel. I mean, it could be either at this time of year, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah, Noel is good. Noel's fine. We'll stick with Noel. Uh, look, Christmas show, crowded market. Must be quite hard to to differentiate yourselves. Yes, I suppose. I suppose in some ways it is. But what we try and do is is just approach it from the point of view that we're going to make a show that we're proud of and that, that we enjoy performing, you know, without worrying too much about uh, about the comparisons. So we'd done some work on some Grimm's fairy tales before, and uh, we we just kind of had the idea for a Christmas version of Hansel and Gretel. And then once we started chatting about it and expanding on it, we uh, we got carried away, had a lot of fun with it, and and here we are. Do you ever do you ever get a sense of the weight of responsibility that you have? Let me explain what I mean by that. I have such clear memories of going to Christmas shows. I I I'm pretty sure I can remember being three or four years old at Christmas pantomimes and, and Christmas theatre. And of course, Christmas shows are very often uh, the gateway for a lifetime of, of joy and passion for, for theatre for young children. In many cases, it's the first time they will go to the theatre, and maybe the only time they'll go to the theatre uh, that year or, or any other year. There is a certain responsibility there, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the main things that we were very... Uh, keen to to make sure that we did is to make it as Christmassy as possible. I, I, in my opinion, you know, the best thing you get from a Christmas show is that you love being at the theatre, but then it is full of Christmas treats. And so we wanted to make sure that Hansel and Gretel really had a lot of that in it. And also was a, was a gentle experience as well. I think that Panto can sometimes be a little bit much for some of the smaller members of the audience. 
And so with Hansel and Gretel, we very much try to kind of give them an introduction to that kind of theatre, as you suggest. So there's time for them to get involved and, and really enjoy it in that way. But it's all done in a very gentle way so that they're not going to get scared. They're going to think, oh, that was a really fun experience coming to the theatre and I definitely want to go again. It's not sensory overload. No, absolutely not. No, there's plenty. There's plenty for the adults too, though. I think that's also really important. We're very aware when you're making a family show that the children have to come with their parents or mm. their you know, guardians or whoever, friends who are bringing them along and that they are, they're adults and therefore there needs to be plenty for the adults to enjoy as well so that they're engaged too. Because I think if your significant adult is engaged, then you're going to be way more engaged yeah. than if they're sort of thinking, oh gosh, when's this going to end? <laughs> Normally it's quite easy for me because I talk to artists on this podcast. I say, so what do you bring to the stables? Well, I'm going to sing my songs with my band. And it's pretty easy. <laughs> uh, this is a, a slight detour for us uh, insofar as it's a show. So I think I need to give you the opportunity to really give us a sense of, of what the show involves. Well, uh, the show is is a retelling of, of Hansel and Gretel, but with a, a Christmas twist. Um, it's suitable for, for very young ages. I think from we've said from three and up. Um, but as Antonia was just saying, you know, the, the key word really is family, because we try to make sure that there's something for all of the family in there, that everyone will enjoy the show. And we use a huge amount of puppetry as well. And uh, all of the puppets are, are designed and made by us, as is all of the set. Um, as much as possible, it's made from recycled and reclaimed materials. But I don't know whether you would necessarily guess that from looking at it, because we try and make it as beautiful as we possibly can. It comes with all original music as well. And I think, as we said, it's a sort of jazz-inspired soundtrack. And it's just a really, really fun way to start Christmas, both as an audience and for us as performers. Yeah. And it's not surprising that a show coming to the stable should have that original soundtrack, which which really does feel uh, very jazzy. Uh, talking of you two, as a, both a, as a performing pair and indeed as a couple, th- does that pose you any challenges going on stage some days? I'm guessing you have your, your normal day-to-day stresses as, uh, as, being, uh, as being husband and wife. Well, I think we met working together. So in that sense, we already had that working relationship, which very, very much helps. So we we very much try to keep work and, and personal life separate. But actually that, you know, you say that, but that's completely impossible. You know, yeah. it's always going to, one's going to bleed into the other. But we're both quite calm people, really. We have, uh, and we, we've got used to working together so much now that we, we have little rituals that we'll do before we do a show. Uh, we have, uh, we, we tend to always do shows where we, we never leave the stage while we're, while we're um, performing. And before we go on, we often have no time to sort of prepare. So it's very much a kind of off we go, then let's have a really fun show and enjoy ourselves. I think also working together help actually in some ways helps your relationship and vice versa. Because you, you learn from working together to defer to the other's strengths. And, you know, if you can take that into your personal relationship, then actually it, it gives you a moment to stop and think and go, well, maybe I'm not in the right here. Maybe I, yeah. maybe my wife is right after <laughs> all. If, however, you see one puppet looking just a tiny weeny bit edgy towards uh, the other performer, you may get a sense that perhaps, I don't know, someone hadn't emptied the dishwasher or, or similar. You, you mentioned you met when, when working together. Come on, that's only a part of the story. You met when, when on Romeo and Juliet. It was clearly, well, scripted for you. Yes, it's quite a cringeworthy story, really. But we were playing, we were doing two Shakespeare productions. We were doing The Tempest and Romeo and Juliet. And in The Tempest, we were playing Miranda and Ferdinand, also a a pair of young lovers. And then in Romeo and Juliet, we were playing Romeo and Juliet uh, together. And so, and then, and then we, we we were very professional though while we were doing the tour. We mm. we weren't together. We didn't get together until afterwards. Yeah. And hopefully, our relationship won't end in the same way. <laughs> yes, and hopefully with uh, with far less tragedy. Um, 
Talking of the experience that you draw on, I mean, you mentioned that you were both working on, on Shakespearean productions. You've both got a, an acting past. And, and Noel, you, you've got a, a, a past history in street performance as well, which must come yes. so perfectly into play on a stage like The Stables. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's a really, um, it, it was an interesting and, and maybe slightly unusual background. You know, I, I, it's a relatively small community, the street performing world. And uh, it was a big inspiration for the way that we wanted to produce our shows as well. In the beginning, the first show that we made literally came out of a single trunk that appeared on stage. And it was that sense of being able to kind of bring a whole world out of what was apparently a tiny package and create this show from nothing. That was the the idea in the beginning that, that really kicked us off. Well, you're you're 50% of the way there to giving us a, a real sense of, of the kind of pleasure that we can have coming to see these shows just for Christmas. How about we play an excerpt from the show? What, what, what should we play? Well, I think um, let's play a little bit from the beginning of the show that just gives you a flavour of, uh, of how it starts, how, uh, how we meet Hansel and Gretel and just how Christmassy it is. I don't suppose you've seen my friends, have you? They shouldn't be here by now. We've been waiting for them for ages. really really does sound brilliant it's coming to the stables in the week just before christmas isn't it so you'll be there from monday the 18th through until saturday the 23rd of december we're letting you go home for christmas um tickets available at stables.org uh, the tickets are cheaper than the normal concerts uh, they vary depending on where in the uh, where in the arena you are but uh, they're really really good value and it's also worth pointing out that on wednesday the 20th there's a relaxed performance what do you mean by that relaxed performances are for anyone who might experience a sort of sensory overload when coming to the theatre normally so we'll make sure that the sound is turned down the auditorium will be lit so you'll be able to get up and leave whenever you would like there might be a chill out area for people to go and relax if they need to just take a moment to gather themselves before they then come back in there's always an open door policy with relaxed performances so if at any point anybody feels overwhelmed they can just leave take a moment take a breather and then come back whenever they feel ready I've been to shows in the past, not at the stables, where I've also wished that I could just get up and go halfway through. But I'm way too, I'm way too polite to do that. But no, that, that relaxed performance uh, is is really fantastic. As as Antonia's saying, though, if, if you've perhaps got a child who who has sensory issues, uh, it's absolutely ideal uh, to bring them to that show on the Wednesday uh, afternoon. So Monday the 18th to Saturday the 23rd, stables.org for more tickets uh, and more information about you guys and perhaps uh, some of your other shows. Where do we find that? Uh, you can find that on our website, which is Boxtail Soup dot co dot uk and tail in that is spelt at t-a-l-e like the story uh or you can check out us uh, on social media you know we're on all the usual platforms and it's just at boxdale soup and there's loads of information on our youtube channel as well and just to be clear you were bts before bts yes we were 
<laughs> At least I, I think we were. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit less screaming, but much more fun. Antonio and Noel, really lovely to chat to you. I'm sure that many of our listeners will be uh, really looking forward to seeing your show just before Christmas. Thanks for Thanks having so us. Much. Oh, doesn't that sound brilliant? And that brings to an end this December edition of Turn Up the Volume from the stables in Milton Keynes. As always, if you get a chance to tell friends and family about this series, that would be much appreciated. And if you get a spare moment to leave a review or a rating on your podcast app, that really helps, helps get the word out there and helps support the work of the stables. If you want to find out more, stables.org is the website address. And of course, you can follow the stables across social media. Uh, just search for Stables MK on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook and on YouTube. Thanks again to my lovely guests today, Peter, Mary and Boxtail Soup. And all that remains for me is to wish you a fantastic festive period, however your market this year and a 2024 full of good things for you and your family. From me, Nick Copper, and everyone at the Stables, it's goodbye for now, and see you next year.